0: Welcome to the Clifford Chance Podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. This is the first of a series of podcasts looking at global trends in M&A activity, which will be explored in the 2019 edition of our annual Global M&A Trends Report, due to launch in the next few weeks. In this first episode, we take a high-level look at the trends that our experts see in the global M&A market in 2019. My name is Nelson Jung, antitrust partner based in London, and I'm joined today by Jennifer Baluto, a senior associate in our global tech group, Stephen Reese, an IP partner, and Nicholas Hughes, a corporate partner who specializes in the energy and infrastructure sector. If we cast our minds back to this time last year, the global M&A environment did not paint a very happy picture. Values were down 10% on 2016, and the global economy was flying low. This year, I'm pleased to say that despite global and local factors impacting, just thinking about trade tensions between China and the US, Brexit Brexit ever closer approaching, global M&A deal value is expected to increase by more than 20%, amounting to in excess of $3 trillion. And we've seen a steady flow of deals over the past year or so. Indeed, according to Merger Market, M&A values are up across all major regions, with the biggest increases seen in Latin America, more than 45%, in the largest market, and North America, again, increases of more than 30%. Now, in terms of significant deals, the period of March to May says the lion's share of the year's biggest deals, including Tadega Shire, Cigna Express Scripts, and in the UK, Comcast Sky. The hottest sectors, um, were probably energy mining utilities and TMT. Tech and data have certainly been the driver for lots of m and this year, not just in the traditional tech sector, but across all sectors in what is an increasingly digitizing economy. Indeed, the vast majority of global data lies within non-tech companies and has yet to be converted into tangible value, and the potential of this underlying data is increasingly driving deals and deal values. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Jennifer, who will talk to us about the tech sphere where we are looking at data barriers and how these digital borders are dictating how businesses shape their systems and how this is now impacting cross-border M&A. Jennifer.
1: Thank you, Nelson. Um, So as Nelson said, um, cross-border M&A is acquiring a digital dimension. Um, he's also mentioned the fact that every sector of the economy is now reliant on data. Actually, it's projected that global data flows will contribute 11 trillion dollars to the global GDP by 2025. So data flows are generating far more economic value than trade in goods. The world's digital leaders have long been open about the strategic importance of data analytics, insights from consumer data in one market can drive value in other markets, but that value can only be truly realized if that data is portable. What we're seeing now is increased uh, restriction by governments on the flow of data, this concept um, that is emerging of digital borders. These restrictions take various forms, ranging from asserting data sovereignty to data localization, censorship, and data privacy. And these are driven by different motivations. Uh, it could be national security, or data privacy, cybersecurity, or even economic competitiveness and promoting the growth of local businesses. Nelson mentioned the uh, the tension between the U.S. and China. This is now becoming more digital, as we have seen recently. Um, a really good example of this was the uh, blocking of the uh, merger between Broadcom and Qualcomm, which was stated to be on national security grounds. But you know, this is clearly you know, a coincidence, this happening at a time when the race for 5G dominance is really gathering pace, and with both sides, the US and China, are really trying to assert um, their dominance in this area. And you know we have seen on the one hand U.S. Um, you know using uh, particularly executive orders, but also antitrust measures, which Nelson will mention later, to block particular deals that threaten the competitiveness of China. But actually on the on the Chinese side, they have taken a, a stronger approach of asserting um, cyber sovereignty over the um, the Chinese market, tightly controlling the flow of data in and out of. Um, out of China. And if we look closer to to Europe, we, of course, know about the the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, which has arguably created the first data free trade zone, where there is unrestricted flow of data within the club and policing of transfers of data at the border. And we're seeing other markets like Japan that are keen to join this. you know, the EU data free trade zone by completing the process of aligning its uh, data privacy standards in order to ensure a smoother uh, flow of data between Japan and the EU. Um, another hot topic at the moment is this measures by the Reserve Bank of India to require all payment data to be stored within India, which has sparked outrage from large tech companies and uh, financial investors alike. So we are, in essence, seeing the creation of digital realms with digital borders uh, protecting those realms. These digital borders are here to stay, and they are beginning to shape corporate and deal strategies. Facebook recently um, announced its decision to construct a $2 billion data center in Singapore as a hub for the Asia Park region, and this was based on Singapore's open data sharing policy, which allows a free movement of data across borders to jurisdictions within the same or similar data privacy laws. So we're beginning to see this. Um, um, these digital borders beginning to shape corporate strategies, but they are also influencing deal structures right from um, due diligence stage data mapping and understanding the data regulatory framework across different markets is a key and primary part of, uh, of diligence and it is also beginning to drive deal valuations. So, for example, if a business that is heavily reliant on data cannot use that data in another market, that is more likely going to result in a reduction in deal value. But we're also seeing these digital borders creating new opportunities for investment. So the need for data centers and cloud and edge computing solutions driving joint ventures between businesses and mergers and acquisitions. Recently, we um, we, we read about Paytm, India's largest digital payment company, announcing that it had teamed up with Alibaba um, in order to set up cloud servers in India to tap into the country's growing data center demands. So lots of opportunities there as well. And what we will be looking um, at very closely this year is how businesses really um, use their know-how and the insight on these um, new digital borders and mapping the regulatory framework in order to maximize the opportunities and structure their deals in a way that can help them really um, get value out of this data and gain competitive edge.
0: Thank you very much. Jennifer, you've spoken a lot about deal value um, and and what you've seen there in terms of recent developments. I'm gonna ask Stephen, Um, whether Stephen you can tell us about how the smart use of IP can drive value on deals. Thanks Nelson, yeah uh, certainly
2: as uh, technology uh, and data has become much more of a focus uh, we're seeing now businesses are looking to leverage their IP assets uh, much more creatively and to drive greater value from those particular assets Um, and we're seeing that in sort of two ways. The first is really Uh, how you can use your IP assets to generate greater revenue um, either by the combined offering of of, uh, assets coming together and being greater than the sum of their respective parts or through more creative ways of effectively reselling uh, IP and technology and using its flexibility through licensing structures which helps bring uh, greater diversity to revenue structures and also helps businesses enter into new fields of activity as well. We're also seeing IP being used in creative, certainly in a more creative sense, to um, drive a better position in a competitive, uh, competitive deal process, where they may use their own IP assets um, as a way to enhance value um, and also to to enhance their attractiveness within a deal transaction. Uh, Certainly, a couple of examples of those of of recent time: Uh, the Apple Shazam transaction was clearly uh, very much. Uh, one of attention and focus. Uh, people I think assume that that was a nice tie up in order to try and prompt more trade through the uh, Apple iTunes store uh, through music recognition and I think that will certainly uh, contribute but that's not necessarily driving the new revenue and I suspect that part of Apple's strategy behind that uh, acquisition is really about prompting a wider advertising business uh, program where I think Apple are going to take their business too. Um, and looking more from uh, not just audio recognition, but certainly taking Shazam's technology uh, into the virtual uh, and the uh, the visual recognition technology to drive drive greater advertising revenue that way. Um, Other areas we've seen, we've sort of talked about issues between uh, concerns around US and China. Um, uh, Clearly, uh, we still have a lot of um, issues within the US market and concerns about China buying up technology but certainly here on these UK shores, we saw last year the Imagination acquisition. Um, That was an example where uh, Chinese bidders were able to take advantage of perhaps um, an unfortunate situation where Imagination and Apple were uh, in dispute, and that had an impact on Imagination's valuation, uh, which the Chinese bidders were able to take advantage of uh, and come in and acquire shares at a much lower valuation. So are certainly two examples we've seen. Um, In terms of businesses looking to use their IP uh, uh, in a sort of creative way to try and um, drive uh, greater value, um, again we saw Coca-Cola's acquisition of Costa uh, towards the end of 2018, uh, which was a very significant transaction and that effectively delivered to Coca-Cola a ready coffee business. And it really was about um, Coca-Cola getting hold of a uh, recognized brand in order to take their beverage market into a new field, uh, being that of coffee.
0: Okay, so those were some very headline-grabbing deals that you described, some of them focusing on, on data and tech again. Now, we also want to, in today's podcast, focus on infrastructure and other hard assets and, and trends we're seeing there. Nick, is that something you'd like to talk to us about?
3: Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Nelson. And, and look, as you say, I think it's, it's important not to forget sort of hard assets when you're talking about this sort of tech area. Um, what we're really talking about in terms of hard assets is infrastructure, energy, real estate. And really, in a, in a world of geopolitical and economic uncertainty, increasingly volatile markets, it's hardly surprising that there's a renewed focus on, on assets which give predictable, stable returns over the long term. You just have to look at Europe last year and some of the the sale processes that took place. Very competitive, high multiples paid, really reinforcing investors' desire to continue to buy assets in this sector. And and to my mind, that trend is going to continue. You had record levels of fundraising in the sector. By the end of the third quarter, there was nearly $70 billion raised for infrastructure alone. You've interestingly got a number of new investors moving into the sector, now that might be Private equity houses raising infrastructure and energy funds, organizations like Blackstone. We've had a number of private equity houses raising real estate funds, and also a greater role for corporate investors, organizations like Swiss Re. And, and finally, the, the sort of political and economic desire in many countries to, to invest in infrastructure is, is clearly important and is going to influence this, this sort of future area. So against that sort of global backdrop, how do you, how do you create the right environment to attract capital? Go- clearly government stability and a consistent regulatory regime is key. At the end of last year, one of the transactions we closed was GIP's acquisition of a 50% stake in, in the Hornsey One offshore wind project. That was a $6 billion deal and was probably one of the, the largest project financings raised for the renewable sector anywhere in the world. And really, you've got to a point now where the UK is at the forefront of developments in in offshore wind. You have the largest projects, the most innovative financing structures, and those structures and and processes are now being taken into account elsewhere around the world, so to other parts of Europe, developments in the US, in Asia, in places like Taiwan. And and really, this this having a stable regime, a clear incentive programme, and has really encouraged people to make significant investments in the technology. So you've now got larger turbines, you've got investments in the supply chains, and all of these things together means that you're able to bring new infrastructure on stream at significantly lower costs than you would have done in the past. And actually, when you look across Europe as a whole, you're now getting to a point where you know, the, the level of subsidies for, for offshore, offshore wind is, is extremely small, and these are becoming very cost-competitive. Offshore wind is, you know, is a good example of where governments have been successful in attracting capital. But need now need to people think about how they can do this in other sectors. You know, new, new nuclear is a, a good example as to where people need to consider this further. You build a new power plant, maybe it will cost you $20 billion. But actually, if you step back and look, maybe half of that is, is interest on the debt created during the long construction phase. Surely there are better ways to finance major infrastructure projects such as this. And one idea being discussed is is to put in structures in place like the Thames Tideway project, where actually you get consumers to to be paying into the the compensation scheme during the time whilst the asset's being constructed, overall giving a better deal for consumers from the asset. So one of the areas we've touched on is returns. Why else might investors wish to invest in infrastructure? And and I think a key part of this, particularly for some types of investor, comes down to influence. I spend a lot of my time advising on on energy and infrastructure transactions in Africa and really see this playing out there currently. China last year reaffirmed its commitment to its Belt and Road Initiative, pledged another $60 billion worth of, of investment into Africa, into railways, in ports and roads, going from the east coast of Kenya right across to Nigeria. You're also seeing this in terms of Chinese investment into mining companies. And picking up on on this sort of theme for influence, we saw potentially in response to that, the U.S. passed the Build Act. And so there's now a new mandate for a new development finance institution called the International Development Finance Corporation, which was was previously OPIC, and an increase in the mandate here to to close to $60 billion. So real real competition for for influence in terms of the roles of, of different investors in the sector. A couple of the other trends we're, we're seeing sort of flowing through. One is diversification, and this is into new markets. You know, if you've got compressed returns from, you know, markets such as the UK, which were traditionally seen as safe, you've got greater political uncertainty. Well, actually investors are stepping back. Should they be looking at new markets? So Chile, Mexico, India, how different is the risk profile re- really? And what are the returns that might be available by looking to new markets? We're also seeing diversification into digital infrastructure. You saw Macquarie and the Danish pension funds acquire TBC, the Danish telecoms and fiber optic provider last year. But this is happening in Europe, but it's also happening in other markets. I mean, Jennifer, you were involved last year in, in CVC's investment in Liquid Telecom. You know, a, a sort of fiber optic broadband provider that was across continental made a very significant asset for people to invest in. And also the way in which people are investing. It doesn't need to be buying infrastructure assets outright. We've seen a number of the, the Canadian pension funds actually look at coming into different levels within the capital structure. And we're also seeing these, these investments into, into real estate. So really just sort of bringing it back to, to sort of M&A trends. And one of the, the interesting features of, of this increasingly global sector is the convergence of, of the M&A terms in terms of the, the commercial and legal terms upon which deals are being struck. Traditionally, there were quite stark differences between M&A terms in Europe, where deal terms were pre- pretty seller friendly, and the US where the buyers got a lot more protection. Now, every year we spend time analysing the deals we've worked on across all of the regions. And it's clear that these deal terms are converging you run an m process to sell an, a portfolio in Asia. You've got institutional investors from the US looking at the asset. You've got a global energy companies. Why are they going to contract on, on sort of local terms? Having said that, nuances clearly remain between different markets. And really our role as, as a global m advisor is to help our clients secure the best possible terms, whether that's taking a competitive position in an auction process, or looking at helping them to choose the legal regime which which best meets their objectives.
0: Thank you, Nick. Now, now you've spoken a lot about the geopolitical uncertainties and the, and the need for consistent regulatory regimes. And that certainly is a theme that, that resonates with me as well from an antitrust perspective. Um, antitrust enforcement um, is increasingly politicized with, with regulators facing pressure from national governments to, to demonstrate that they can address the challenges associated with an increasingly digitized economy. Now, I'll focus on three trends in particular that we're we're seeing, um, primarily in relation to to tech and antitrust, um, and something we'll be seeing more of in 2019. They relate to merger control on the one hand, then unilateral behavior, so the so-called abuse of dominance cases, and then also... Um, Another area, which is really a greater scope for cooperation and and cross-industry alliances that we think we'll be seeing more of in the next year. Um, Firstly, in relation to to merger control, after after years of transatlantic convergence around the concept of an economics-based approach to antitrust, um, we may now be witnessing something quite different, a reversal of this trend and greater divergence between EU and US antitrust and merger control enforcement. On this side of the Atlantic, merger control reviews in the tech space are increasingly influenced by, shall we say, wider macroeconomic observations, um, all revolving around increasing concentrations, higher profits for some tech companies in particular, a slowdown in productivity growth, and higher inequality. Now, these observations, which feature very prominently on the Twitter account of DGCom's chief economist, have given rise to an increasingly widespread and politically-fueled perception amongst regulators that they have under-enforced. They may have just missed a boat, missed a trick for many years, and have been too hands-off. So what we're seeing now really is a proliferation of so-called theories of harm, of concerns that antitrust regulators see around an alleged dampening of incentives to innovate, um, particularly in the tech sector, but also in pharma and other sectors of the economy. Um, now, these are these are allegations that are, if you like, easy to allege and, and difficult to rebut um, for us as, as advisors and the companies involved in, in deals of that nature. The traditional tools of antitrust and merger control measure unilateral effects, um, you know, to, to verify the extent to which a deal may give rise to consumer harm in the form of price increases. These are often inadequate um, to substantiate concerns around a lack of innovation, a much more fuzzy concept. So competition authorities are moving away from this um, more economics-based assessment and and instead are relying on on other types of evidence, in particular internal documents, um, which can be particularly relevant for parties um, contemplating a deal, in the next year or so. Um, Getting that in order will be absolutely vital. In in some sense, all of this is what what we call internally a theory in search of a case. So transactions in the tech sector will be subject to a greater degree of, of scrutiny and require careful preparation and the right strategy, particularly on the buyer side, because it's not clear at all that these types of concerns would always be valid. But what we have seen in relation to merger control specifically already in the past year is the introduction of new jurisdictional thresholds. In Germany for instance based on the value of the transaction rather than the turnover of target companies with a view to broadening the scope of potential enforcement and what is now being discussed and what we'll be hearing more of in 2019 is a next step of reforms which will consist of potentially new substantive tests for mergers in the tech sector in specifically This this would really entail shifting the burden of proof onto the merging parties. So rather than authorities being required to demonstrate that a merger is harmful in order to intervene, parties to a merger may have to prove that their merger is pro-competitive. That would would really herald quite a significant shift and is not something as yet that we're observing in the US. Um, So again, maybe a, a shift there. In relation to dominance cases, unilateral conduct again we'll be seeing regulators looking more closely at markets in the tech sector markets that exhibit these network effects these winner takes all markets that are either at risk of tipping in favor of one operator or already are dominated by one large digital platform they're likely to do so the regulators by relying on sector inquiries and market investigations where the regimes have these tools with a view to Assessing whether the existing Competition Enforcement and Regulatory Toolkit is fit for purpose. This could conceivably result in new regulation, also taking account of privacy and and looking at Stephen's intellectual property rules. So one of the potential outcomes of this is possibly a, a plea for greater data portability. For instance, the shape of electronic IDs for consumers and other reforms that could be explored in more detail. Um, lots to be seen here. What, one good example um, where we will undoubtedly see more enforcement action relates to the online advertising market, which, which does indeed seem ripe for more competition enforcement action. Now, this is a market where we've seen a dramatic shift of revenue from content creators to well, one content aggregator in particular, with sometimes dramatic consequences for, for publishers or rival ad tech companies. Um, We're also like to see more lobbying for a lowering of intervention thresholds in in abuse cases. Again, the Germans spearheading these efforts, they already have a a lower intervention thresholds uh, relating to relative market power rather than um, any company having to have a dominant market position. Mm -hmm. Germany will hold the presidency of the Council of the EU in 2020 and is currently already laying the foundations for a shift in antitrust policies for the EU as a whole again with a view to making the regimes as a whole more interventionist as with new merger control tests there's undoubtedly a significant risk that any new regulation has unintended consequences is counterproductive and it will undermine investment in the technology sector but there is also some good news at least Um, this was my third point relating to scope for more alliances Um, here what we're seeing is that there certainly will be greater scope for industry rivals to form alliances that are designed to foster greater cooperation, um, uh, so greater competition with big tech companies. Um, why is that? We see a number of market that, markets that authorities consider to be concentrated and where antitrust risks remain high for M&A, but, but these alliances really will be focused on other forms, of cooperation specific elements of the supply chain in particular r d we think are most likely to be affected why are regulators tempted to move here and allow a greater scope for cooperation well it's really all around enabling greater cooperation and collaboration between disrupted incumbents i.e those who have been disrupted by big tech and who are now struggling to build scale a case in point is is Kangaroo 2. For those of you who remember, this was the competition commission in the UK that had blocked a collaboration between public service broadcasters to create a joint video on demand platform. This was some 10 years ago. Interestingly, nowadays, Ofcom is saying that the UK's public service broadcasters will increasingly need to collaborate in order to compete with the large digital rivals they encounter, in particular, Netflix. Now, On this note, um, I would like to thank our speakers for their time today. I think we've had an interesting discussion um, considering how IP digital borders um, are affecting M&A and around the growing appetite for M&A in hard assets in infrastructure, of course. If you'd like to hear more about our M&A expertise at Clifford Chance, please visit our global M&A toolkit, follow us on LinkedIn and stay tuned for the next installment of our M&A Trends podcast series.